There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. This is my commandment for you, that you love one another as I have loved you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And amen. Please be seated. We have New Testament readings today from John's Gospel and from his first epistle. Now, if you were ever to submit a manuscript to a publisher for a book, the publisher would ask you two questions. One, to whom are you writing? And two, what are you hoping to accomplish with them? Now, John is an, is an elegant writer for many reasons, but one of those reasons is that he answers those two questions. In his gospel, John says he wants people who do not yet know Jesus to get introduced to him. In his first epistle, he says that I want people who do know Jesus to know that they know. And what I'd like to do is talk with you a little bit today about what he's doing in each of those. I'd like to offer three observations from what he wants to say to believers in 1 John, and then one observation from what he wants to say to those who do not yet believe in John's, in John's gospel. Not only does he answer those two questions, but it is though he leaps from the first century to the 21st century to get in our kitchen. Listen to what he says to the believers in 1 John. If our heart condemns us, I don't know a single believer who doesn't wrestle with that. Most believers believe it, it's all true, but could it possibly be true for me? If God, if our heart condemns us, John wants us to know God is greater than our hearts. And so he goes on at the end of chapter 5 to say, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John is writing to you and me if the text that goes on in our head is, I haven't been faithful enough in prayer or in mission or in caring for the poor. John's writing to you and me, if we believe all this stuff, but fear, I may have missed my calling somewhere in life, and I'm just a loser. John's writing to you and me, if this is what keeps running through our head, I believe all that stuff, but all my life, all I've ever gotten from my family, from teachers, from schoolmates is this message, you're not good enough. I feel so ashamed of who I am. How could God possibly even like me? How indeed do we know that we know God? Or better, how that we know that we know him and that that's okay, that it's a good thing for him to know us. John says at the tail end of our epistle passage today, we have three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the spirit. Listen, 
This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one that testifies, for the Spirit is the truth. And then for some incomprehensible reason, the lectionary leaves out the punchline, the next verse. There are three, there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. These three, he says, are God's true testimony about his Son and about the life that we have in him. So, first, the water speaks. John reminds us of the day that he stood at the foot of the cross and saw the spear go in and water come out. That water cannot but underscore the fact that Jesus came to us in the water of his baptism to wash away our sins. For at the river Jordan, John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said that he will provide living water so that our thirst can be quenched and that so from his his own being, rivers of life would pour out for us. He sends a blind man to the pool of Siloam to wash his eyes and so he can see again. With a basin of water and a servant's towel, Jesus washes his disciples' feet and shows them how they should live, what his new regime of love will be. And still, now, Jesus comes to us in the water of baptism to purify us and to give us new life. This is God's true testimony for us. And that is why whenever you come in this building, and those of you who are not yet able to come into this building, thank you for coming as far as you can on that side of the screen. But our longing is for you to be with us one day. That's why when you come here, featured up front is the baptismal font to remind us of the cleansing waters of baptism. It's why at each of the doors of entrance and exit, there is a mini baptismal font. Okay, like right now, it doesn't have water in it, but one one day it will, and it's still there to remind us of our baptism. So how does baptism speak to us? Martin Luther, who felt condemned all the time, would walk around saying, I am baptized. I belong to Jesus Christ. I can't get in the shower without praying, Lord, thank you for the water of baptism. In it, I am buried with Christ in his death. By it, I am raised to new life with him. And by it, I am brought into the fellowship of all the baptized. That is how the water speaks to you and me. Second, the blood speaks. John also calls us back to to the foot of the cross where he sees not just water flow from Jesus' spear-pierced side, but sees the blood. For on that cross, Jesus shed his blood to cover our sin, 
so that God's, the demands of God's justice would be satisfied. And so we could find a place in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The blood says to us that lifted up on the cross, shedding his blood, Jesus becomes healing for the soul sickness of sin. The blood says to us that lifted up on the cross, Jesus casts out the prince who has kept the nations in darkness and begins to draw all people to himself. And to this day, the blood says to us in the wine of the Eucharist, what Jesus said in John 6, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. The blood is a means of our abiding in him. And it brings us assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. That blood never has to be shed again. It did its job. And not only that, but the blood reminds us that when Jesus began his ministry, he showed up at a wedding feast and changed, changed water that was in purifying vats. He changed it into, into celebratory wine of the new life that was beginning between this new couple, giving us a foretaste of the banquet at the end of the age. This is God's true testimony to us. And so the way the blood speaks to you and me is as we come to the Eucharist or as the Eucharist comes to us, as is our practice these days, it is a word of assurance that forgiveness is real and that life in Christ is a celebration of his love. And one day, will one day will lead us to a great wedding feast that we get to anticipate together. Here's how the blood speaks. Here in my very hands is the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here on my very tongue, the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ into my very being comes the Lord Jesus Christ and the fullness of who he is that I may become what he is in his own time. And third, third, the Spirit speaks. The Spirit also testifies, says John. The Spirit came to rest on Jesus at his baptism and to empower his ministry throughout John's gospel. The beloved disciple had heard Jesus teach that it was in order to gain the spirit for his disciples that, that he, Jesus, was going to ascend to the cross and return to his heavenly Father's side. In fact, he says, it's to your advantage that I go. Otherwise, the advocate will not come. But when he does, he will speak the truth and I will come to dwell within you. The spirit speaks of Jesus' life in you and me. And so then as our Eucharistic prayer that we will pray in just a few moments so elegantly puts it, and that we might live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose for us. He sent the Holy Spirit, his own first gift for those who believe to complete his work in the world 
and to bring to fulfillment the sanctification of all. And so, of course, John was there when Jesus gave birth to the church and launched the worldwide mission. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, forgive sins. This is God's true testimony for us, that Jesus takes up residence within us by the Holy Spirit to make our hearts glad in the truths of his word and to fortify our will to live out those precious truths. So here's how the Spirit speaks. Maybe I've had a dramatic conversion. Maybe not. But if I know there's no alternative to Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit saying, you're my child. Maybe I speak in heavenly tongues. Maybe not. But if I groan over what aches in my heart, That's the Holy Spirit bearing witness. You're my child. Maybe throughout the course of my Christian life, I've overcome one sin or addiction after another. Maybe not. But if I care about it, that's only because the Holy Spirit is saying, dear child, dear child of God, I'm at work in you. Maybe I've been able really to forgive somebody and love somebody who hurt me badly. Maybe not. But if I can just utter, Lord, have mercy, that cry can only come because the Holy Spirit is saying, oh, my child, oh, my child. Friends, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And this is God's testimony to us, the water, the blood, and the spirit. That's what John wants believers to understand in his first epistle. Now for his gospel. Here's what John says is the point of his book his account of Jesus' life. I haven't written everything. That's kid paraphrase. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Now, the reality is from day one, most of the readers of John's gospel have been believers, not unbelievers. But what he wants us to know is what he wants unbelievers to know. And so, he talks, John writes about the great I am's. That is who Jesus is. And he writes about the signs, the ways that Jesus' Jesus's life touches and impacts other people. But then, There's one thing he says to us about how we are to communicate that truth with those who do not yet believe it. He provides one strategy, one, love one another. And that brings us in a roundabout way to today's passage, John 15. John 15 is in the middle of a a, uh, a set of... Uh, a, a whole piece of John's gospel that runs from John 13 
to John 17. This is Jesus' last night with his disciples. At the beginning of that night, what does he do? He washes their feet and says, what I've done for you, do for one another. Love one another. Why? So that all people will know that you're my disciples. And at the end of this, these chapters, he prays to the Father, Father, make them one as you and I are one, so that the world may know that you and I are one, and that the world may believe that you sent me. Lord, make them one. And here, right in the middle, which in some sort of Hebrew poetic sensibility means it's at the high point of his discourse. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends. You get me. You know my heart. You're my friends if you do what I command you. That is, if you love one another the way that I've loved you. Here's the simple truth. Here's the takeaway. There's no greater case to be made for the truth than love for one another. There's no greater, greater betrayal of the truth. No greater reason for the world not to believe if we do not love one another. I don't know all of you intimately enough to be able to say what I think that might mean for your life. But I'd like to tell you about a friend of mine that we just lost, Marva Dawn, who is really one of the great mothers of contemporary worship, of calling for worship renewal in the contemporary church. Marva Dawn died last month at the age of 72. Uh, Marva and I got to uh, teach together a number of times at the National Worship Leader Conferences. And we would get to hang out in the green room and I'd trade her my cookies for her potato chips. And, and we, we would just talk and, and compare notes. Marva was... Um, Marva... When she was a young undergraduate at Wheaton College, she was strong, vibrant, radiant um, person. She was just always bigger than life, but she was physically strong as well. She was a comp competitive swimmer. She went on to do to seminary, graduate school, got a PhD at Notre Dame University and then um, began to write to help people caught up in the kind of in the fog of contemporary worship to make, help them rethink what worship was all about. And so she became sister to boomers who were ready to get past worship as narcissistic self-entertainment. And she became mother to a generation of hipsters who are ready for worship to become, once again, an engagement with, with mystery and with God's majesty in the communion of his son. And then her body started to fall apart. A couple of different 
kinds of cancer. Blind, I think, in one eye. Late in life, both legs below the knee had to be amputated and just become a kidney transplant, just becoming more and more frail, but becoming proof of Paul's teaching that though the outer person wastes away, the inner becomes all the stronger, becomes newer. And um, just a couple of things that, that she used to do in, in, um, in her worship conferences. She used to like to, she used to, with her walker, come out to the, come out and lean against the podium because she couldn't stand on her own. And one of the things that she really, one of the ways that she introduced historical forms of worship was like this. She would explain how the, the greeting, the Lord be with you and also with you, comes from Ruth. And then she would say, I think there needs to, we need to understand there's more people in the room than just you and me. We need to bring the Lord into it. So she would say, look, just go with me. Hold out your arms. So would you hold out your arms? And I'm going to say, the Lord be with you. And you're going to say back to me and also with you. So let's do that. The Lord be with you. That's okay. The eight o'clock service did it better than that, but so let's do that one more time. The Lord be with you. And then she would say, now that we brought the Lord into the picture, we're able to talk with one another. And then whenever she would see somebody, I forgot to bring my screen up here. Whenever she would see somebody get up to read scripture from their phone, oh, she would just go off. That is when they would read it out loud, she would go off and she would say, look, these words, they're ephemeral. They just go away. We're here to deal with eternal truth. Take the Bible, take a book and read it as though it were real, as though it were deep, as though, as though it were eternal. And whether you agreed with her or not, you're going like, tell it, lady, word. Marva Dawn spent all her life rising above self-pity, rising above envy of others who were doing better physically. She laid down her life for two generations of people who needed a larger vision of worship. And I carry around in a notebook that I keep in my bag, a quote that I wrote down from one of her talks. Good worship forms a people whose way of life is a warrant for belief. Good worship forms a people whose way of life is a warrant for belief. Your life and mine, ours together, is the best case God can possibly make for the truth of his son on this earth. And so I pray that God grant all of us the, the grace to love as we have been loved. The water, the blood, and the spirit are God's testimony to our hearts that not only is this just true out there, but this is true for us. And love is our testimony to a perhaps rightly skeptical world. 
if you'll permit, I'll close with the collect for Thursday in Easter week. Almighty and everlasting God, who in the Paschal mystery established the new covenant of reconciliation, grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.